So if you were in the lobster dystopia and you were forced to change into an animal, what animal would you be? Well, you can notice by my little squad cast name that we've hinted at before. I My name on here is Jaguar Parrot Squid. I know is that the hierarchy? It, uh, no, I know that's what you're thinking is, oh, you have to pick one. So that must be the hierarchy of your choices, which I would normally say yes. However, we just watched a movie where a monster took DNA and combined it and made a killer monster alien. Um, what did you call it? What reference did you call it? Oh, Venom. It's Venom, a symbiote. Yeah. It made a Venom hybrid monster alien hybrid. And so I'm going to make a hybrid of Jaguar, Parrot, and Squid. Jaguar for which, that. Which parts? Which parts are which? Oh, I didn't give it that much thought. But I gave you. I, I can give you reasons. Jaguar for that primal, animalistic, alpha, apex predator vibe. Parrot for that super chill, hanging out vibe. And then squid, because cephalopods are like cephalopods and vertebrates developed nervous systems separately from each other. I may be getting these details wrong, but I have been listening to that Common Descent podcast. And so they break down cephalopods very, very, very minutely. And so the fact that cephalopods and vertebrates developed nervous systems differently means Yeah, their neurons are different. Yeah, means that transforming into that animal would be a completely psychedelically different experience on a fundamental level. And man, that fucking appeals to me big time. So, I mean, technically, yes, I would say jaguar, parrot, and squid in that order, but it is very flexible, which is why I combined them all split-second style. I'm just imagining a jaguar body, parrot wings, and squid limbs, and it's a very weird image. I would say, yeah, like the jaguar body, the the parrot wings, and, and for the squid, almost like tentacles on the back. That It's, it's kind of like a Pokemon. A cat Pokemon with bird wings and, and tentacle arms. Yeah. You heard it here first. Jaguar Parrot Squid. <laughs> I can't wait for Pokemon to actually give me a name for that. I'll take a cute name. I'll, I'll settle for a cute little wordplay name. I like Vulpix. I like Doug, Doug Duo. <laughs> Japaro Squee. Yeah, I'll take Japaro Squee. That's great. Yeah, I want to be Japaro Squee. How about you? <laughs> I decided I would be an owl because it's a predatory animal where I would be able to defend myself and I'm not at the bottom of the food chain, uh, night vision and the ability to fly. And then also owls are very aesthetically pleasing. They look really cool. And I don't know if they're like other bird species where they mate for life, but Hell, who knows? The idea is that as an animal, you can have that second chance at love. Yeah, I I think animal is a very good choice. I agree. You're a very aesthetically and aerodynamically pleasing animal. You're a bird of prey, but you're at like the lower end. So you're not having to like fight to kill goats for you. You're just like, I'll just get a little mouse here and there. And no one really bothers you though, because you hunt at night and you're super stealthy. So yeah, you eat, just kind of hang out, sleep in tree holes, snacks, take eat naps. tootsie pops. Yeah, I that's a great choice. I, I think that's a great choice. 
Yeah, unlike everybody choosing dogs and becoming dogs, wild yeah. dogs in the wilderness. Yeah, you got to depend right. on. Yeah, yeah, you got uh, come on. Well, let's crack on, as the British say. <laughs> or I was thinking Kraken because of the tentacles and monster oh, yeah. hybrid. Yeah, let's do it. Kraken. This is Necromancer. Necromancer. I'm Shira. I'm a fan of rom-coms. I'm Brett, and I'm a fan of horror movies. Every week here at Necromancer, Brett picks a horror movie, I pick a rom-com, and then we flip-flop those movies and turn the horror into a cute little cuddly romance and the romance into a horror. This time it's really not that hard because the horror is already baked into the plot. But also your rom-coms are not always cute and cuddly. (laughs) There is usually a strong amount of despair and sadness. Which is why this movie was a Shira movie. Oh god, there was so much despair and sadness. You just want to lick it all up. Um, yeah, it, it definitely was a Shira movie, but it's also a movie that I couldn't easily recommend to other people because I know that this is too, like, you know how I, I really latched on to the fact that in May, how funny it was when people say, after she says, well, I'm weird. And they say, I like weird. This is one of those things where I feel like someone would say to me, I like weird. And then I'd say, okay and show them this movie and they're like no this is too weird you're too weird yeah i i i wrote down may several times in my notes or thought about it several times during the movie but the difference for me is the comedy in may really bounced off of me it was like sunblock like i was wearing oh sunblock. this one had great hits oh this but was such a funny movie for this me one and felt i know more like dipping like this one felt more like sunbathing You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It felt like natural sunbathing. I didn't get the comedy. It didn't hit me probably the same way it hit you. I wasn't, I didn't laugh a lot during this movie, but I did think this is a very well-constructed, well-made, well-acted dark comedy. (laughs) Like this is a good comedy. It's not a very dark comedy, but it is good. This is one of those movies where I would definitely be upfront about the triggers, which are, you know, there's violence, there's yeah. animal abuse. You and I think it's it, European. <laughs> yeah, it's European. There's there's sexual content that's, you know, dubious consent. Uh, and and yeah, it's a very disturbing movie, but then to me, also very hilarious. Yeah. I I think that it helped that I've seen um, uh, Lathamos's your is it your ghost Lathamos? Uh, I I've seen he's very Greek. Uh, I've seen one of his movies before, Dogtooth, and I thought it was a really fucked up and amazing movie, but another one that's really hard to recommend, to put this into perspective, somebody who I, I know had seen Dogtooth as well mentioned that he showed it to his parents, and I was flabbergasted, I, I thought. 
this is not a movie that you watch with mom and dad. And I feel like the same thing about the lobster. I don't think I could, I could sit through a showing of the lobster with my parents and be comfortable because it's such a disturbing movie. It's very alienating. You know, sometimes you walk out of a movie feeling more together. I feel like this is a movie where people walk out of that movie feeling very singular. Yeah, I, I, there are, I, I could recommend this movie to my mom. In fact, I think she saw it and came away kind of neutral on it, but interesting. there's there. Yeah, it is interesting. Cause it's like, this is a very de- divisive movie I could imagine. And just to come away going like, eh, yeah, I get it. Um, but I, I, like, I recommended Stoker to my mom, you know what I mean? And that is not a parent recommendation movie, but my mom said, Hey, me, I've got a couple girlfriends over, and we are in the mood for something fucked up. You have any like Black Swan? Like your mom's up. cool. And I said, "All right, uh, Stoker, try it out." And sh- and she said, and I said, "Stoker, the movie is fucked up. It's on my it's on my DVD shelf." And then she watched the movie, and her only response or her first response was, "Stoker, that movie was fucked up." But I wouldn't watch that it is movie a great- with my mom. <laughs> Yeah, but that movie, I think, is a really good pick, especially if you're a woman who's looking for something fucked up because the narrative is very female-centered. It's ultimately about the relationship between the protagonist and her mother and then her growing sexuality as a young woman. And so I think that there's a lot that's interesting there where it's not um, I think it's it's more mind fuckery than the gratuitous fuckery that you get out of uh, I Saw the Devil, for example. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, but yeah, I I loved The Lobster. I, I do agree with you that I think that the, uh, the, as we'll get into it, the slaying of Bob was very gratuitous and I don't think they needed to show it or depict yeah. it in the way they did. But that's the thing about this director is he is very unflinching in the way that he depicts things. You know, most mo- a lot of movies cut away from the most difficult moment. And this is the kind of person who says, no, I'm going to make you look or I'm going to make you sit in this uncomfortable moment. Uh, and I don't know, for me, sometimes I think it's hilarious, but that could be because my my dial is completely off and, and unique unto me. So I, I don't necessarily think I could recommend this. No, I, I hear you on this is hard to recommend. And also that that moment is a talking point that, we'll get to because i i i hear you like yeah it's a very direct choice and i don't disagree with the choice it's just that it's so uncomfortable i don't like seeing dead dogs like it it is that simplistic right and and Um, i i'm just as angry about this as i am about um what is it steve or kevin or kyle whatever it was literally the same type of dog too yeah why do these cute little fluffy shepherds have to get such a raw deal in movies i don't know man so let's let's get into it let's uh let's crack this lobster Okie dokie. So this is going to be ripped straight from the headlines of Wikipedia, the synopses of Wikipedia. So I don't know how into the quirkiness this is going to get, but here we go. 
We should preface this, like, I don't think they mentioned this in the Wikipedia summary, but it the movie opens with this completely out-of-context scene. Yes. Um, I kind of understood the context based on the fact that I was watching a European director give me <laughs> a weird movie where being turned into an animal is a punishment for not being with a significant other. So... I immediately got what the movie was going for. Yes, I, I know what I know exactly what you mean in terms of like throwing us right in the boat. But um, I really liked I like to me as someone who knew what I was getting into in terms of European director, weird, quirky movie, people turned into animals as a punishment kind of thing. Like I thought it was a very bold choice to say, hey, either you're either you're buying into this premise or you're not. But it's not the premise you're buying into. It's, hey, either you're buying into this weird movie where we're going to slowly give you the information you need and you're just going to have to trust us or you're going to be spending the whole movie going, huh, what, why? And this movie honestly probably is not going to be for you. So right away, first shot of the movie, you know what you're getting into. Right. And the first shot is basically this woman who we learn more about later drives up to this herd of donkeys out of nowhere and just shoots one of them. Yes. And bang, we're in the movie. Boom. Okay, so then we start with David. David is Colin Farrell and I think he's cute with a little pudge. I like I like Colin Farrell with a little meat on him. I think he looks cute. I thought he was very cute too. He was a very normal looking attractive weird quiet introvert guy yeah um so david is escorted to a hotel it is revealed slowly through this like welcome to the prison system type stand on the red line stand here take your picture type thing the hotel is very prison like in that aspect uh we reveal that Single people have 45 days to find a partner or they will be transformed into an animal luckily, of their choice. So at least they get to pick. Um, the dog accompanying David is his brother, who failed this course. Uh, we learn, I, I, I don't know, again, this movie do, deals out information on a need-to-know basis based on tone and feeling rather than narrative. Right. This movie fully sets you up for, I, I feel like there are some movies that kind of jerk you around and they pull ambiguous stuff on you without you feeling prepared for it. But I feel like this movie sets you up right from the get-go to understand that it's not interested in answering questions. Right. Uh, the, any questions that you have about the narrative will be answered. Any questions you have about the themes or emotions are up for discussion. I, I think that's a very that's a very hard thing to do in a movie. That's something I probably couldn't do. But also to do it in such a way that you trust it and you're prepared for it and you get to the last few minutes of the movie and you don't feel like the payoff isn't earned or you were jerked around or sold a bill of goods, where I think there are other movies where they might be more ambiguous but not necessarily promise that at the beginning. Yeah. So you feel a little bit cheated. And I don't think that this movie does that. I also, I love the narration and I loved the, uh, it's a Beethoven string quartet 
which is what they used to to make the the score in the beginning of the movie. Very nice touch. I think chamber music is perfect for this movie. I think so too. Yeah. Um, so uh, again, I don't know wh- at what point this information is doled out, but David's wife. Right at the beginning from the, like the first scene where we see him, she's telling him that she's leaving him. Right. So he has no choice in the matter. It's kind of like lawyers and stuff getting together and saying like, you are divorced no matter what. And now we're going to, and he's like, it's like involuntary commitment, right? Into a, into a hospital. Like she's found someone and, and immediately moved on. But through no fault of his own, he is now forced into this this institution where he is on a ticking clock or else. Um, I think one of the humorous early moments is it's it's right from the get-go. She's explaining to him that it's over, and then there's a knock at the door, and she says, that's him. Like, it's moving quickly. Like, that's how quickly she had moved on. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Um, and so we also meet David. Uh, David is Ben. Uh, ben, what's his name? Wickshaw. He was. Oh wait, two. I think. Um, right? Is that him? I I forget what his name in the in the. I forget what his name. It's not David. Is uh, Colin Farrell? Oh, I'm sorry, Robert. Oh no, John. John, John is the man with the ben Winshaw. He's Q. He's the young, sexy Q. Uh, the the emo boy cube, heartthrob cube, and uh, Olivia Coleman is the hotel manager, the Queen of England, multiple great. queens of England. Uh, and then we also meet Robert. I the man needs no introduction. John C. Riley, holy shit! Uh, oh, he was so sweet. Anything this guy is in, uh, I, I don't think range is necessary a necessary requirement for a good actor. But when you have the range of John C. Riley, that is a powerhouse quality to have. Um, I love him. I showed Doug Kong Skull Island not that long ago, and he loved it. Yeah, you think it's a bird, but it's a fucking ant. <laughs> uh, you know how much I love ants. Uh, so the hotel has many rules, many rituals. The first thirty minutes of this movie is nothing but world building and setting up the pace. And I have no problems with that because 30 minutes in, I was like, shit, I'm still digging this movie a little bit later in the movie. I started checking my watch a little bit more. Oh, but these rituals are so disturbing. Uh, The the awkward dancing and you find out that it's actually daytime when you assume that they're having this ballroom dance at night and you learn about the whole system in which they can extend their stay. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, masturbation is banned and punished uh, severely. Sexual stimulation is provided by the hotel maids. Oh, it's so disturbing. Where they are blue balled and cock teased with a lap dance, but not allowed to have any other kind of gratification from that. So I don't know what the maids do for the ladies, but for the guys, it's basically a butt rub lap dance. Um, Whatever it is, it's not consensual because he really doesn't want her to do it. Right. And it's It's not so so much that he doesn't want her to do it because he doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't want her to do it because it feels really good. And then she stops doing it before he can have any kind of satisfaction. Uh, But you're right. They attend dances and they have kind of extracurricular activities. The dances, I mean, you're right. Again, we're building up this world where 
this is how couples meet. Couples go and dance and play sports and go on walks and and have activity time. This is how people meet. But some people, due to their age or mental illness or uh, disabilities or handicaps or just through being emotionally drained from being in a marriage that is suddenly ended because of an affair that is thrust upon you. These are people who are just not good at meeting people the normal way, the regular way, the way you're supposed to do it. But I think Um, the idea is that in this dystopia, people aren't given the opportunity to interact with each other authentically. Everything is so strictly regulated that nobody even has any social skills anymore. And they don't, they, nobody makes expressions. Everybody kind of has a somewhat flat affect. And it's like they have no sense of how to socialize in a normal way or in a way that we consider normal. And then they latch onto these really superficial things like the nosebleed girl uh, and John, uh, or, uh, just, uh, just the, the way that they try to find a superficial thing in which to connect them. Uh, and then lying in this world is just punishable by death. If you, if you commit the sin of deception, everybody is just kind of blankly honest. Nobody's really capable of any real artifice. And even the non- uh, romantic relationships are kind of twisted by this insistence on monogamous coupledom uh, because you see these really touching relationships like the best friends uh, and they're not permitted to just be uh, best friends or be themselves. Okay. So this is one of those moments where it's just one of those only on necromancer podcast moments only on Necromancer Podcast can we go an entire conversation talking about Rutger Hauer and Split Second and action movies and dystopia and all of that that you just heard last week. But it takes a conversation about the lobster to name drop or bring up Equilibrium. <laughs> uh, have you seen Equilibrium? No, I think you've mentioned it before, though. Okay, so Equilibrium is a dystopia that's very 1984-ish where the entire population is controlled by a corporation that gives them pills and gives them clothes and says, you are basically emotionless robots. Emotion is banned. And the crazy thing is that because Christian Bale is so super robotically logical and has absolutely no emotions, that means he's so super precisely calculated in his movements of, of logic that he has the most amazing gunplay skills. And he like shoots bullets eight times a second in eight different directions. So the action in the movie is very, very, very unique. Um, But this is very similar I think the byproduct of that is that this society is saying the most logical thing to do is find your mate, stay with your mate, and die. There's no dating involved. You are either single or you are a couple. And if you are... Life or death. Right. And if you are single, you will be transformed into this animal because that's 
because they need animals because animal it's the future and animals are dying so it's the only way to keep the beauty of nature alive that's like but also <laughs> like yeah you have this threat of i need to force a relationship with someone and the thing is what makes it a dystopia is that the rest of the world has no problems with this but it's these it's this collected misfit group of of misfit toys that's like we're broken beyond repair and now we are f- and the only thing that can save us is the thing that most everyone is just going eh so i'm spending the rest of my life with this person who cares so i'm wearing the same suit for the rest of my life who cares but for some people, it's like they just don't have the energy or the willpower or desire or they have too much emotional stuff. To me, this is like a, a Wes Anderson dystopia. This is, this it is, is like Wes it Anderson is kind and of Wes Anderson-y. together. Yeah, yeah. It, it has a little bit of a twee feel to it. Uh, I think especially uh, I like the Butter Biscuit Lady. She yeah. she's very funny and and we get the redundant narration moment with her right. that I thought was hilarious and then the way that Colin Farrell diffuses the fight between Ben Winshaw and uh um John C right. Riley he does it in this just this really shrimpy way where he's stepping between them but his arms are down because he really doesn't actually want to get hurt so he's kind of cowering as he's diffusing the fight it's a it's a really funny physical comedy moment in in my opinion yeah and this coming from uh miami vice guy john uh michael mann level of like you know michael mann requires super duper training physical gun training for his actors so like this is super physical. Like, yeah, fucking Colin Farrell can take you out. He trained with Michael Mann. He's got some John Wick as Keanu Reeves level dedication under his belt. But in this movie, he's just a frumpy, balding glasses guy. Uh, give me frumpy Colin Farrell any day. I'm a fan of frumpy Colin Farrell, and I'm not taking it that back. That greasy Miami Vice handlebar mustache Colin Farrell. I mean, I like that too, but I like frumpy Colin Farrell. He's just right. kind of endearing. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, there uh, there is a way to extend your time, which is once the 45 days are up, you are not immediately transformed into an animal. You are th- you are kicked out and exiled into the woods. Once. Oh, wait, wait. No, I, I didn't know that. I thought that, that that's only people who run away. Uh, I don't know. I guess it could. Uh, maybe I think I, it, I thought that, that the loners were just runners, and that that you could be once your forty five days are up. If you don't decide to run, they'll turn you into an animal right away. Um, yeah, I guess maybe I just missed that detail, but uh, yeah, I guess the point is I missed it on my end. But they they people do escape. But the 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 limbo between the the dystopian city and the dystopian prison hotel animal factory is the woods, and so that's where our group of rebels and loners and misfits live. Um, and so, one—I don't know how often it is. Once a week, once a—it must be once a day or whatever. I the, think it's once a day they hunt for the loners. Yeah, the the prisoners, the hotel prisoners are allowed to go out into the woods with trank guns and bring back the people 
to be transformed into animals. And as a reward, they get one extra day, which as is pointed out later in the movie is like, that's not really going to make a difference. (laughs) Well, also because if you are like the mean lady and you get really good at hunting people, then it's, you can extend your stay, but everybody knows that you're into hunting people and everybody cold and emotionless. Why would you want to get close to someone who's cold and emotionless? Yeah. Um, But then, but then uh, John wins the affections of a woman. Oh no, this is John. Okay. John wins the affection of a woman with constant nosebleeds by purposely smashing his nose in secret. I've already gone off on too much, too many tangents and my motor's running. So all I'll say is the lady who plays nosebleed lady is in the movie, Hannah. And Hannah is a Rango movie. That is a movie that I recommend all the time, and I love it. Uh, go She's watch. She's a great Hannah. actress. She's also in that uh, Netflix show, The End of the Fucking World. Oh yeah, so yeah, she's completely great. They move to the couple section to begin a month long couple trial partnership. Um, David decides to basically court this notoriously cruel woman who has tranquilized more loners than everyone else, and he approaches her originally with his plan to approach nosebleed lady by making it cute and friendly and fun but then as she kind of immediately says she she gives him that attitude of go away so later his courtingship of her his way to signal to her i am your match and your mate is to let her choke on an olive and die because she's faking it but it's a weird test but it is a weird test but at the same time it's the callback to this weird wes anderson kubrick level of absurdity this is why you should have someone around you so that you don't choke so that you don't get raped you need a partner oh, yeah the couple or, propaganda yeah and so the propaganda man with sits. woman man yeah. eats with woman woman <laughs> walks with man right so it's like yeah i want someone who isn't going to save me okay then i i won't do it and he shows that dedication by not showing any emotion when she kills his brother that is that is a poker card move and she's calling his bluff and he and and to me this is where we get in the conversation of the dead dog which is to me she says i kill your killed your dog okay that's a slap in the face she says i kicked it to death okay that's a gut punch she says i it whined and she mimics the whines that's an uppercut it then cuts to her one bloody leg. And that to me is like the UFC. I'm sure you can appreciate this. The UFC, I ground and pound. I'm knocked out, but you have to go for those extra hits because you have to. That's how the UFC, that's how you win MMA. I mean, a good ref stops it. But to me, if I was the ref, I would call it right before you show the dead yeah, dog. Yeah, you would you would have been a herb dean. Yeah, I would have been the mensch who goes, "Okay, but we don't need to actually show the dead dog. You built up masterfully to the violence of dog blood being an extremely painful moment for me. But I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you as a filmmaker. This is violent and you're making me confront emotions I don't want to feel, but I'm herb deaning right out of the dog show, <laughs> the dog reveal. 
I don't need to yeah, see Yeah, and, and he goes to the bathroom and that's where he shows emotion and she catches him crying. And then it's like she's like the evil schoolmaster from Matilda. She starts dragging him, right? Yeah, but it's like, it's almost like it doesn't, it, I I almost take it as, okay, so now that they're a couple, they, they have a month-long trial what do you call it when you start a new job and you're on probation? So they're on like a month long probation and then they have the yacht test. The yacht test, the final test. If she's with Colin Farrell, she's got a defined moment of do or die. The yacht test is a do or die moment. Either you're a couple or you're animals, right? There's no going back. But if you're a couple and you tricked your way into being a couple and she can show that you lied, she gets to go back to single life, which means she gets to go back to hunting her way to a free hotel room and she doesn't have to spend it with him. So for her, it's like, yeah, I'll try it. You, you, I, I, I called your bluff. You failed. Now I'm reporting you to teacher. And then this is, yeah, an hour into the movie, the movie takes that sort of from dusk till dawn twist of now this is a refugee in the woods rom-com. <laughs> Uh, right i i like too that the maid helps him yeah escape and then we get uh, a little bit more info about her and yeah and we i like that we've had this narration from rachel wise and uh i mean i listen to a lot of books she's an excellent narrator yeah. uh and i also like the the fact that we never learn what animal he turned her into or that the animal thing was real because me, a cynic assumed, well, they obviously lie to people and they just kill them and then release some random animal into the wilderness. But, but the animal transformation is real. I like that when Ben Winshaw explains it, uh, what is it? Colin Farrell's response is that makes total sense. Yeah. I thought that (laughs) That was was hilarious. That did get me, that did get a laugh out of me. I um I will say yes it drives me super nuts that we don't find out what animal it is but what animal do you think he made her I think a mouse cuz I'm I'm a fan of the witches right if you want to punish someone you turn them into a mouse and then you eat them right isn't that what they want to do they wanted to turn the delicious kids into mice and candy and whatever so yeah, I ha- do you have a guess? Do you have a, a thesis? I don't a, a I don't know. I a part of me wonders if maybe he didn't do anything to her at all and the beginning of the movie is her coming to find him when he's been forced to turn into an ass because she suggests that they turn people who are bad into the worst animal. She's like, they're going to turn you into a bad animal. And I just wonder if that means they turn people into asses. Um, And then the beginning of the movie is really the end of the movie. And she just comes to find him and kill him and get revenge. But I might be thinking too much into it. That could have been her husband from before the hotel. But uh, I, John C. Riley says something to him later where he's like, I saw what you did to her. That was disgusting. Yeah, I'm going to be 100 Maybe it's a slug. I'm going to be 100% honest here. I'm going to have to go back and watch the beginning of this movie because I 100% did not put together that that woman who shoots the donkey is... The mean woman? The mean woman. It is. I, I did not make that connection at all. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, but I, I will say it's very interesting that you bring up the fact that they might not even transform them into animals at all, because that reminds me of Taxi Driver. The first time I watched Taxi Driver, I mean, I thought it was overrated, but after I watched it a couple more times, I was like, oh, yeah, this movie is actually pretty good. One day, real rain's going to come. And so then a friend of mine asked me, do you think it was all a dream at the end after he gets shot and he's bleeding out? And I was like, you know, it didn't even cross my mind that it was a dream at the end. Like, I just accepted the movie on the base logic that everything you're seeing is happening. And that's how I, I accepted the end is a dream. I, in Taxi Driver, I definitely think the end is a dream because he goes in there and he basically massacres them and then it pans up and you do, instead of like the Wes Anderson side of the house, the camera goes above all the rooms, the roof is cut off. Yeah, the God's eye view. Yeah, the God's eye view and it kind of wanders away and then it seems to go into this fantasy fugue where he's a hero. I highly disagree. <laughs> But oh, you I think also, it happened? I, I think it really happened. I think that our society, that the society that he was trying to fix is broken enough for them to celebrate his actions as being heroic. And I think him seeing Civil Shepherd at the end is him seeing someone else who's probably a pretty blonde at the end. But he is, it's basically the cycle of violence restarting. It's, if it's not Civil Shepherd, he's going to go kill a, a group of, of pimps for it's some other pretty blonde woman that he gets derangeously attached to that he's going to go kill someone for. And maybe the next time it'll be a senator. Maybe the next time it'll be a pimp. But I think it's more about the cycle that his mental illness cycle, there's nothing that he can do that will satiate the craving. Anything he does is going to, it's like serial killers in the cooldown period. Um, so I, I take it more face value of, yeah, he's back out in the world driving a taxi. Who knows what the fuck he's going to do? I think that's fair. Well, theories aside, <laughs> uh, our boy Colin Farrell makes it out into the wilderness. Yeah. And so in the wilderness, uh, he's, he's, he meets up with Leia Sudo, who is this, uh, rebel leader type and she runs, it, again, it's it's very weird because we have this this social structure system where even the the people in the city are guided by I don't know the government or whatever it is that's doing this. The people in the hotel are guided by this weird ass government agency offshoot that is f- that if you're not doing it by will, we're going to do it by force. And then you have these people who are saying no to both of them. And yet even the loners are are given strict rules and structures. They have to be loners. They have to be loners. They can't dance. If they do dance, it's got to be a, a separate. That's why we listen to electronic music. That I got a chuckle out of me. <laughs> um, yeah, they have all these rules and they have this whole spy ecosystem of one of the maids is the double double agent mole and they have missions where they go into the city and the whole idea of the marriage license and the way he bluffs his way through getting out of a marriage license because you know she didn't have one either but just the fact that they act like they're belonging the cops like all right i get it you're a couple um and they're checking their shoes and their arms for yeah. dirt to find out if they're people from the uh the woods. Crazy small detail that really makes movies like this. Both these movies are filled with small detail world buildings. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I don't know what else to say other than he gets, he gets involved with Rachel Weiss. Because uh, they're both short-sighted. Is that why he gets involved or is that just a breaking well, the ice moment for them to later say, I, I think it's more like an improv for improv, long form improv. It's more about going with your instinct and then making a justification for it after and finding the fun in that justification. I think this is, Hey, we're short-sighted. So later when they're making out, they can be like, Oh yeah. The reason why we're together is we're short-sighted. What's you nosebleeds. What's you. Yeah. We blend right in short. Right. But that's kind of what's so darkly comedic about it is that their relationship is actually formed, not because of their similarities, but how they complement each other. But this dystopian society forces them to focus on this superficial connection and it blinds them to the facts about how they're really compatible. I don't think it blinds them though, because they're they're no pun intended. There's I know because they're seeing them because they have the baseball code. They've got the arm up, nose itch, ear pull. They are seeing each other, but they're hiding it. So I, I do agree with you that society is saying no, it has to be short sighted or it has to be nothing. And they're saying no, we have an entire inside language of reasons why we like each other and they have to keep that hidden oh i love their secret love language i thought that was so cute and so romantic oh it's like arm up means i'm thinking left arm up means i'm thinking of you right arm up means i want to fuck like it goes from (laughs) cute to just like i want to bang right now but also because nobody has any subtlety in the society they can get away with being incredibly obvious with no one really registering or paying attention to it until it's extremely obvious right and another thing is (laughs) um uh i'm gonna jump ahead but after she gets blinded it's super, super, super awesome and cute and heartwarming. It's a top tier moment in this movie where he's where she says, do you want to play this game? And he says, no, I've run out of things for you. And she's like, do you still like me? And he says, kneel down on both things, lift up right leg, touch right ear. And he's giving her an entire sentence of visual love that of his declaration, even though she's blind. And she says, do you really mean that? And like, oh man, that's filmmaking. That's like advanced filmmaking. That's not one-on-one stuff. That's deep level final draft in the moment level. Like, fuck yeah, we're in the zone. Yeah, man. That was a good scene. I really like that scene a lot because, you know, for all of the violence and the disturbing imagery in this movie, there are some really cute, lovely moments. Yeah. Um, and there's also some very painful moments, like when they break into the place to shoot or transform the hotel staff. Oh my gosh. Uh, so yeah, they're sent on these side missions where Leah Sado is basically wanting to get revenge, um, or justice or whatever. Uh, uh, Colin Farrell breaks off to talk to Hannah lady and, Bond, sexy cue boy, um, Ben and, Winshaw, and Ben Winshaw, and they their their confrontation is very 
again, it's very beta male. <laughs> it's like neither of them wants to confront each other. Yeah, he's like, hey, he said he, uh, hey, he fakes his nosebleed, so he was lying, and then he stands up and smacks him and goes, hey, we don't care, get out, and he goes, all right, fine, and pow, and then he leaves, and like, there's no confrontation. Whereas Leia Sado has got the mind fuck. Here's a gun, pull the trigger, ooh, you know, oops, all that kind of stuff, and. The the choose who do you want to live me uh, you or your partner and all of that stuff and just the fear that Olivia Coleman portrays is, uh, in that scene. That's why she's yeah. got an Oscar. <laughs> I I thought that scene was was great and uh, I I like the detail that Leia Sadu's parents are both classical guitarists <laughs> and that's yeah. why they're made for each other. Right. And, and Cole, yeah, Coleman and her partner are musically intertwined. They're singers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I also liked how uh, how they forced the couples to, or the single people to listen to their music. Yes. It, it and their very, song was so weird and awkward. It felt very much like if some eccentric young woman uh, whose father owns a bar sets up a karaoke night specifically so she can sing like all the kids. So she's MC, but her MCing is her singing in between everyone else. It's very much like, well, since you're here, you have to listen to me. So I thought that was pretty good. Exactly. No, it's exactly like that. I also enjoyed all the appearances of random animals in the wood from uh, the girl who became a pony because she has nice hair Great choice for her. Right. Uh, we saw a pig, a peacock, flamingos. There's a camel at one point. Yeah. yeah it's very interesting. Um, to start to wrap things up, uh, there's a cool little side thing of graves. The uh, the, the loner rebels are, are very big on digging your own graves. Again, they tell us before they kind of explain it to us when she says, uh, if you're not going to bleed out, come to us and we'll give you a Band-Aid or help. But if you are going to bleed out, go to your own grave because otherwise we're not going to do it for you. We're not going to drag you to your own grave. You got you to gotta decide right now whether or not you are or are not going to die. So Leia Sado brings him to his grave to make him dig it. They dig out. They, they convince- This is after the blinding, right? Uh, this is during. Uh, so as he's digging his own grave- because Leia Sudo knows that they're a couple, she's also convincing Rachel Vice to get LASIK. But it's all a, a con. She's convinced. This is why I'm never getting LASIK. This <laughs> oh is so God. terrifying. Me neither. The risk very much outweighs the reward. Um, but the LASIK ends up blinding her on purpose. Now Colin Farrell and her are at a crossroads. Either they are going to, he does have to help her physically. There's no longer any way they can hide it. Their solution is Colin Farrell ties up knocks her out and ties up Leia Sudo in a grave so that she can be eaten alive by dogs that's a threat because she made a to bunch him of people turned into dogs and are now wandering the wilderness yep and uh he promises to blind himself so that they can be on equal footing and more or less maybe try to bluff their way in the world of normal living so that they can be together maybe but the movie ends extremely frustratingly for most people i imagine on a shot of colin farrell about to dig out his eyes and then uh rachel vice at the diner waiting alone and we never see if he does it or comes back 
Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene flashbacks. I all over think, again. <laughs> okay, I just got to say that for this type of movie, an ambiguous ending, I think, is perfect because whether or not you get to the next step of him blinding himself and what happens after and what happens after that, they are in a perpetual state of worry over the next thing. And you've come from a place of ambivalence of not knowing anything about these characters to caring for them and having to experience the dread of knowing that you don't get to find out that you get to just keep worrying about their fate forevermore. I agree. The moment it showed Rachel Vice sitting alone at the counter, I was I, I did have that sinking gut feeling of, oh shit, this is going to be the last shot of the movie. And I had that thought process of, no, I want the happy ending. I want to see, I want this, I want that. But you are a hundred percent right. Well, like let's go through the scenarios. Uh Colin Farrell comes back and he didn't do it. Okay, that creates problems where She's going to go back to, she's going to go to animal cage land. Um, Colin Farrell does poke out his eyes and now they have to bluff their way back into society. Chances are they're probably going to get caught because they need a marriage certificate, right? So she goes back to being an animal, the threat of being an animal. Uh, He shows up, but they never get caught. Well, at one point they're going to die, at which point, boom, right back to animals. So it doesn't matter when they break up. At some point, you're right. There's always that fear of, because of things completely out of my control, whether it's death or just drifting apart or whatever, or finding love with someone else, I am always at risk of being alone. And society is telling me being alone is bad. And we're in a dystopian black comedy because they're punishing you for being alone by turning you into an animal, which... Wouldn't be that bad if you're a Japosque. <laughs> right. I But I feel like there are certain types of movies that prepare you for this kind of ambiguity. And I it it to me, it felt like the most appropriate way to end it. I think some uh, spoilers for the following movies, I guess. Um, but some movies that I think do this really well that I love and I've actually recommended on this podcast before. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, Knights of Kiberia, where you're following this woman through all of her ups and downs. And it ends on a very ambiguous moment where you're kind of suspended wondering, is she going to be okay? And the whole point was to get you from a point of ambivalence to a point where you're actively emotionally worried about what's going to happen to this person and that worry, that that desire to care for them, to protect them stays with you. Yeah. My references, my back of the book index references are Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. And, oh, yeah, they do that, too. I, th- I love that ending. For yeah. That. And it comes at night. Both of those are very great movies that spend the entire two hours preparing you for a very ambivalent ending that works if you are if if you are willing to to have that yeah 
Right. Well, I know I, I've I've spent a lot of time cracking our claws on the lobster. So we, we got to get into remix territory. Oh, before we do that, though, who would you kill from the lobster? I would kill Leia Sadu, and I'll tell you how I'll do it. I'll do it during the middle of a diamond heist on the top of like the 138th floor of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai <laughs> after after removing part of the window so I could scale up the building to, to, to hack into the building system and then have to get the nuclear code scientist back in safe hands after purposefully giving him over to a guy who wants to use nuclear codes to start a nuclear holocaust. That's how I would do it, which is how Paula Patton did it in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So, yeah, but also, she, what a fucking asshole. Who made you king of the jungle? Like, come on, man. <laughs> what a fucking asshole. So, you'll be interested to know that my horror remix is a prequel story about Leia Sadu's character. Yeah, that's that's where the real horror comes in, which is, I don't want to be part of society. I don't want to be part of this government. I'm free to do whatever I want in the woods. But this lady is like, no, no, Dan. She's a terrorist. Yeah. You're right. She is a terrorist. Um, do you want me to go first? You're not interested to find out who I'd kill? Well, I'm sorry. I thought that you were killing her. Uh, who, no, who are you going to kill? The mean lady. I want the mean lady yeah. to die. I don't. That makes I sense. don't like what she did. I mean, even if Bob's a dog, Bob's also a person. Yeah, that did suck. But I liked in my mind her comeuppance of being transformed, not into just any animal, but into that Jaws-esque sense of like, it's scarier what you don't see. Like that horror of like, whatever it is, it does have to suck because there are some shitty animals out there to be, you know, no offense to like worms and rats or whatever, but... I mean, rat wouldn't be that bad, but if you're a rat in split second world where you are super diseased and a target for uh, Rucker Hauer, that's bad. For um, sure. So yeah. what were you going to say? Uh, that's it. I have a very fast sell on my rom-com. Give no, it to my us. Horror remix. G- give us the horror of okay. the lobster. So my movie is called Cheetahs Never Prosper. <laughs> and it's very much going to go into that dystopian lore of blade runner where real animals are super rare beyond sanity you know what i mean like in the actual lore and book of blade runner real animals versus synthetic animals is the difference between like those rich people who have 80 room mansions with a basketball court and pool thing and just someone who is like an Instagram influencer who like buys fake plane (laughs) viewing. So that backdrop so that they can be like, look, I'm on a private jet when really they're just paying for the privilege of the photo drop. Um, So that's the world I'm building. Olivia Coleman is in the woods. She sees a rabbit. Uh, She's got five tranquilizers. She's got five trank darts in her trank dart revolver. She uses four on the rabbit, but then she like, but she's not a good shot. But then as she's about to, to shoot the rabbit, like a bear comes charging at her. So she has to use the trank dart on the bear in self-defense. 
But <laughs> what she ends up doing is she ends up taking the bear back to her secret base or whatever, and she turns the bear into a human. And then the bear, <laughs> the bear escapes and is on the streets, but it's in like primal bear mode. It doesn't have the sense of a human. It's still in this like rage driven testosterone driven bear carnage mode so you know it's doing things like it attacks a homeless person because maybe a homeless person has a weapon but like before you know maybe it's not even like a weapon maybe it's just like a toy but the bear mind thinks it's a weapon so he attacks a homeless person then he gets called you know the cops on and then he escapes the cops and then you know the lady kidnaps him but then he gets thrown into jail and then he's got to talk to a cop and the cop is like i'm sentencing you to mega death jail and then in mega death jail he's got to like fight for his life and then he kills someone in jail and then they sentence him to death and then boom that's the end of that character, the bear character, which is, again, another up style 10 minutes of we're dedicating ourselves to this premise of this um, death proof level fake out of we're, you're going to spend time with these characters. We are going to kill them off. And now, you know, the stakes of the world. So now the stakes of the world are Olivia Coleman through shady prospects gets a cheetah a rare cheetah from like a Tiger King carnival guy. He's like, Hey, I got this black market cheetah. You want her? He's like, yeah, I, I want her. Cause she's what her plan is. I'm only focused on world building here. <laughs> what her plan is, is she's going to take the cheetah, turn it into a human and sell, oh, okay. sell it off to the humans. Now, what are the humans going to use it for? Again, we have this, uh, uh, Stallone judge dread level of cursed land, uh, or Oblivion with Tom Cruise, my boy Tommy C. We have this world where we are, or, uh, well, the spoilers for the other movie, but we're in this world where it's it's post-apocalyptic dystopian. We're, we're, we, let's, let's just say Chicago. We're living in Chicago. <laughs> but, Chirac. We, <laughs> but we have zero technological communication with any other city. So the only technology we have is this cyberpunk lo-fi tech where we have no long distance communication. We just have short distance. Like you can make a conveyor belt, but you can't communicate with Austin. You know what I mean? And the reason why is that there was, I don't know, some solar flare destroyed all of the satellites and it caused this tidal cataclysmic event and now there are mutant lobster people who patrol the wasteland the 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 the, you know like death stranding type stuff you've got cities and in between the cities are death worlds so what the government does is the government takes humans and forces them into the death zones with trackers on them and what they're trying to do is find the optimal route of whatever has the less lobsters so if you make it, you know, a hundred miles in the north direction, and then you keep dying at a specific spot, you might tell the next people, hey, go north a hundred miles, you'll see this big mountain and then head left. So you're trying to like weave your way through this minesweeper thing. So Olivia Coleman, our bad guy, finds out that her cheetah is pregnant. So what she does is she raises the pregnant cubs and 
she uh, she raises the cubs until they get are given birth then she turns the baby cheetahs into monsters and keeps the woman that keeps the female cheetah to either breed or do more transformations on so now cheetah mama lady is in her cage and her children have been taken away and raised by a evil woman and then given away and they've been you know tortured and disciplined and olivia coleman's got to train the human cheetah hybrids you know which look like real people she's got to train them so that when the government gets them they just ship them off into the death zone now the cheetah escapes the cheetah kills olivia coleman she jumps into the human transformation pod transforms herself into a badass a chick like an avalon ghost in the shell type chick all right, all right. and now she's got to go into the wasteland and find her cubs and bring them home safe or keep them safe and again i don't know what happens after that does she meet a resistance group does she make her way to austin or whatever is the next closest city does she come back and get revenge on the government that sent her kids out I don't know. I'm giving the premise. I'm selling you on the first two and a half minutes of what would make an amazing trailer. If you took footage, if you made a scissor reel, if you took footage from other movies and made this into a trailer, that would be awesome. But I have zero second or third act type solutions for you. It feels very uh, almost a tank girl, but instead of kangaroo people, cheetah people. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a very good pull. I wasn't thinking about Tank Girl at all when I wrote this. I love Tank Girl. But just mentioning Tank Girl is like, yeah, if we were to make this a movie, Tank Girl would be mandatory viewing for all cast and crew. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's a good choice. Um, So yeah, that's my little Cheetahs Never Prosper. Uh, And it's also sad because Cheetahs are very much endangered and have a low success rate in the wild. What about even cheetahs get the blues? I can work with that. That's a that's a good one. And we can work in a blue, uh, a synthwave blues lo-fi soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dig it. Um, <laughs> how about you? I can't wait to see your movie because Leia Sado makes again Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. She makes a great villain. She really does. And I mean, she kind of just wrote this movie for me. Um, yeah. She's a muse. She's French. She's a muse. She is definitely my French muse for this movie. And even the title, I, I feel like I, I came up with the title and similarly to how you did the last episode's remix after I had the title, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it wrote itself. So the title is Dig Your Own Grave. Hell yeah. And you basically get to put that up on a DVD shelf right with I Spit on Your Grave. Right, right. Except my movie doesn't have gratuitous extended rape scenes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I hate, I've seen I Spit on on Your Grave. The thing that I hate the most about that movie was... Um, Yeah, I don't even want to get into it. But but it's, it's it's a tough sell. Anyway, Dig Your Own Grave which is a very empowering story. <laughs> this is a prequel to The Lobster about the violent rise of the loner leader. And uh, quick spoilers, I would say that the turn in this movie is similar to another dystopian movie, Snowpiercer. 
And you'll see where I'm going with this. You'll see. I think you'll like where we go with this. So, All right. I can't wait. Leah loves her classical guitar playing parents dearly. I, I liked this detail about her character. Like, no atrocity was bad enough because it was all so she could maintain that connection with her parents who she clearly loved dearly, but she can't have them in her life unless she has a partner. And also to add on to that, she doesn't really respect, um, she doesn't really expect, uh, respect life in terms of actual life. She's willing to just throw you to the curb. She doesn't want to help you or anything, but she does have a tremendous respect for the music that her parents raised her on so that when, you know, the two start like macking out. Mid, it's so rude. She's like, it's <laughs> rude. You know, she's like, she's more, she's almost more upset that they're interrupting the music than they're breaking the rules of no kissing. Right, because really, it seems like all of this is a pretense so she can maintain this relationship with her parents. So that that's right. kind of that's kind of her reason. Um, so yeah. she knows that she's not a fit for this dystopian couple society because she is aromantic and asexual, or at least that was my read on her character. And when she comes of age but doesn't immediately find a partner, of course she's sent to the hotel to find a mate, and she immediately escapes and is found by the loner group. And Leah thinks that she's finally found a place where she can truly express herself and work around the system. And the original loner leader, Angel, also takes a special interest in Leah because she is a radical among the loners. So Leah starts to notice some things that don't quite add up. Like many of the loners appear to flirt with each other and dance together and paired off loners seem to disappear and are replaced with new loners regularly. And Angel tells Leah that, oh, well, those guys, they were just captured by the hotel and turned into animals. Uh, And Leah is suspicious so she decides to follow Angel one night, and then she finds out the truth. The whole time, Angel and the hotel manager have been working together to make sure that the rebellious guests that that the rebellious guests still end up coupling with someone. That's right. Even the rebellion is a function of this dystopian society. So even when you think that you are working against the system and rebelling against the people in charge, you're actually just working within it. That's very Matrix dystopia. <laughs> or a Snowpiercer. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, you're right. I, I immediately think of the 10-minute uh, dialogue scene with the architect, though. Oh, yeah. It, it's definitely like that. I, yeah. I, I feel like, to me, that's the ultimate horror of a dystopia, is the idea that even rebellion within the dystopia is a function of the machine. Right. That even, right, even the urge to overthrow the government is babysat and watched and cultivated by the government so that they can squash it instead of, you know, at the start rather than let it build. Like they know people are going to rebel, so they might as well let them do it a little and then squash it out. Oh yeah. And then this just completely cracks Leah, drives her insane. She goes full Joker. 
and decides to form a radical splinter cell within the loner group with her three loyalists. That one guy she's always with, the maid from the hotel, and the short-sighted woman. I wanted to figure out, okay, well, why are the short-sighted woman and Leah so loyal to each other? Because she really just picks only a few people to come with her into the city. So you have to imagine that they have a special place within the organization. Yeah, so they ripe, ripe for backstory. So they orchestrate the capture of all the other loners by the hotel, uh, and Leah insists that they leave Angel for her. So we can have kind of a Godfather 1 montage where it's like all the loners that formerly wouldn't have been caught by the hotel guests are falling and dropping, but Angel is left for Leah because she's got to take him down herself. So she takes angel deep into the woods and Wait. forces him to dig his own grave i got a godfather one for you leave the dark gun take the rabbit mm, exactly nice. uh so this is the first time she's making this is this is the origin of dig your own grave she's yeah. she's killing her first victim uh eating her first bite of human if she's hannibal uh, and so she makes him dig his own grave. And then before she leaves, she cuts off his hand and the smell of the fresh blood in the air draws the wild dogs to him and they kill him. And then later, the hotel manager goes to the secret meeting spot only to be greeted by a dog carrying the severed hand in its mouth, Kurosawa style. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the hotel manager turns over the hand and reveals the message that's written on the palm. It says new leader. And now the hotel manager knows what it means. And she's going to double down on the hunting of loners because now they're no longer within her control. So the hotel manager is suiting up with more uh, weapons while meanwhile, Leah is giving the last monologue to the new group of loners about how they will need to dig their own graves when the time comes yeah tonight we dine in hell and that's it that's it that's the prequel oh yeah that's i I couldn't resist the the kurosawa hand no yeah but that's also very frustrating because i don't like it when movies end on the action-packed sequel, like um, Amazing Spider-Man 2 did this. They give us Paul Giamatti's The Rhino and Spider-Man, and they're like, they're about to fight. Eh, just kidding. Save it for the sequel. Or uh, Battle Alita Angel is like, at the end of the movie, she goes to fight the big mega land floating base in the city in the sky. And she's like, I'm coming for you, Darth Vader. The end. And it's like, what? Like, this is the first movie. We got to have a little bit more of an ending. But, I mean, yours works because these action-packed sequel is the dark romantic comedy of the lobster. <laughs> so, like... Right. And it makes sense because Leah goes down in the same way that she killed her first victim, eaten by dogs, as she's digging her own grave. Yeah. So, to end on, like, yeah, she gets a... Sh- oh, you know what she could do? This is Brett movie territory. <laughs> She could grab a shovel and go, tonight we dig our own graves, and then cock the shovel. (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. Hell yeah. I would watch that movie. 
Yeah, I think Dig Your Own Grave is just a great exploitation-y horror movie name. Yeah, I I totally agree. All right. Well, before we get into Love Bites, just want to remind our listeners that you can like and follow us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can also email us at the Necromancer Podcast at gmail.com. Or I mean, at I always get that wrong. Um, anyway, you know how to reach us. And also, you should review us and like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now then, Love Bites for the last week of dystopia. What would you like to recommend? Well, I'm going to tie this into dystopia and animal turning into's. By recommending, I've done this once before, by recommending a very specific episode of a very specific TV show. Uh, before I recommended the episode of, of Samurai Jack called Jack and the Bounty Hunter, which is a collection of short, uh, it's a collection of four short stories that's already in a 20 minute episode. And it follows these bounty hunters that are, are tracking our hero. In this one, it's called, I think it's called the, um, it's called Samurai, it's called Jack versus the Sorcerer. It's season three, episode one. And in it, Samurai Jack accidentally, completely accidentally bumps into a wizard who is so angry whenever anyone bumps into him that he transforms them into a chicken. So this guy transforms Samurai Jack into a chicken and then Samurai Jack spends the entire rest of the episode fighting robots in a tournament as a chicken and having to escape this underworld crime fighting ring of chicken robot fights as a chicken but it's like he's samurai jack so just imagine like if if sounds very pickle rick yeah it's extremely pickle rick that's a great one uh it's it's he he does not even blink for a moment or hesitate to become the ultimate chicken badass and you know samurai jack is the story about a samurai who's taken ahead in time to a dystopia where an evil demon figure has made a complete chaotic world of aliens and technology and craziness and but also fantasy elements so yeah it's it's a brave way to start your season premiere which is you already have two seasons of Samurai Jack being a legit iconic badass. And then to say, not only are we going to start this season off with him being a legit iconic badass, but he's going to do it as a chicken too. I love it. (laughs) Chicken Jack. Yeah. So that's my love bite. Take a bite out of uh, chicken Jack finger looking good. How about, uh, how about you? Oh, uh, for me, I don't, I can't remember if I've recommended this movie before. I have definitely talked about it. Again, I was thinking about some of my favorite dystopian movies. And one of my favorite movies of all time is a little French film. Little, it's a short film, actually, called La Jetie. And La Jetie or the jetty is the film on which 12 monkeys is based 
So if you, Brett, are a fan of 12 Monkeys, this is the split second of 12 Monkeys, except uh, La Jetie and 12 Monkeys basically have the same exact plot in a future that has been decimated by uh, some kind of uh, chemical warfare or um, I think it's like COVID actually. It's yeah. uh, there's, there's some kind of uh, virus warfare that decimates the world. And the main character, this is a man who is a, tra- a time traveler who must go back in time in order to stop this catastrophe. Meanwhile, he's haunted by this incident in his past where he saw a man die on the jetty. And so he goes into the past and while there, because this is me and I like romance, he falls in love with this woman from the past and their connection is very beautiful and dreamy. Uh, I think that in La Jetie, it's very French, very artistic, where the, the passage through time for the main character is very dreamlike, and the woman responds to him as if he's kind of this ghost that moves in and out of her life, and she has no sense of the fragility and, um, you know, yeah, just the fragility of their connection. Uh, but it's a very beautiful movie. Uh, it's totally done in still photographs. It's not actually uh, moving. It's just photo after photo. But it's like a, there are all these just incredible, beautiful black and white photographs that are very arresting and romantic. And the photograph of his memory of the man dying on the pier, the jetty, I mean, is also very interesting and just artistic. So if you're a fan of black and white photography, French films, uh, dystopia, La Jetie is definitely one to have in your back pocket to talk about at parties. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to watch that one uh, due to my dystopian kick lately. And I've only seen 12 Monkeys once. So it'll be fun to go back and watch both of them. La Jetie also has an amazing score. You guys know how much I love a good orchestral score, and it's it's one of the best. And I suspect, I think you might be able to find it for free on YouTube. Oh, yeah, probably. But yeah, that's it for me. Very nice. Do you got a do you got a a helicopter dick sign off or Olympic sign off? Uh, I, I just have to fall back on that Big Daddy Mars sign off. <laughs> okay. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.